Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Larry Cohen, CEO of Trustwell Living. Cohen is perhaps best known as the former CEO of public senior housing operator Capital Senior Living, a role that he officially stepped down from in the beginning of 2019. In the years that followed, Cohen spent time getting under the hood of the senior living industry, and he came away with a sense of both what the industry does well and what it gets wrong. Now, he's applying that knowledge and launching Trustwell alongside some of his former colleagues at Capital with plans to build and scale a middle market senior living operation. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next build conference happening here in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Build is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in architecture design and innovation for senior living owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. And now, here's my interview with Larry Cohen, CEO of Trustwell Living. Larry Cohen, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. I think many know you as the former CEO of Capital Senior Living. So how does it feel to be at the head of a new company, Trustwell, and one that's not publicly traded this time? Well, Tim, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. It is great to be back in the game. I'm particularly excited to be joined by such great leaders that I've worked with for 10, 15 years at Capital Senior Living. So we have been very busy building out our platform, building out our systems, and extremely refreshed and excited to launch Trustwell. So I remember, you know, Tim Mullaney had written a story, but, you know, for our listeners that might not know your plans, so update us sort of on what Trustwell Living is and what your plans are and what your overall strategy for the new company will be. I'm very happy to. So Trustwell was launched earlier this year. As I mentioned, I'm joined by former colleagues who we worked together for an average of 15 years at Capital Senior Living. Collectively, we have more than 100 years of senior living experience. And we were together growing Capital Senior from a company that had 27 communities serving a resident capacity of 5,000 to 129 properties with a capacity to serve more than 16,000 residents. And during that time, we developed a very proven track record. And that also spread across multiple economic and senior housing cycles. So we're very excited to build Trustwell on a culture of trust, transparency, integrity, and respect. And at Capital, we enjoyed a philosophy which we would term a community empowerment philosophy to empower our local leaders to operate their properties with the autonomy, the responsibility, and the accountability. And we're doing the same at Trustful. So we're very excited again to, to be back in the game and feel that we have a lot of experience. At some point, Tim, you are able to say you have wisdom 
And wisdom really is experience. And you learn from successes and from failures and mistakes and, and challenges. And you, know, you take all that knowledge and be able to start from scratch and look at state-of-the-art technologies and systems and people and and software. And uh, it's exciting. And, and ultimately, what we're most excited about is fulfilling our mission to serve seniors and their families and do it with compassionate care and a commitment of exceeding customer expectations. I remember when Tim had written his story, you had told him that uh, you used your two-year hiatus from after you had left Capital to kind of get under the hood of the senior living industry. So I'm curious, when you you know got under the hood, what did you learn? What, what did you observe about this industry? You know, it's a great question. I have about 34 years of experience in senior living. Truly feel like I was one of the pioneers in the, the mid-1980s to get involved in the business and then be very active uh, for you know, 25 plus years. And I took that time to go and look at other operators, look at systems, look at technology. And something that I appreciated 25 years ago was kind of reinforced is that this industry is very specialized. And a lot of the systems, a lot of the tools, a lot of the people, a lot of resources aren't specifically tailored for senior living. So you see a lot of systems that were tailored for multifamily or skilled nursing. And people are trying to build this hybrid and try to have workarounds to have technology and systems and people and training that work for senior living. And it always does, doesn't always work well. So we took that knowledge and that experience. And again, getting under the hoods was great because we saw, I also saw some things were very good. So I actually learned about new systems, new technologies. And with our team and our collective experience, we're taking that knowledge and building state-of-the-art resources to use technology that will be specially tailored for senior living. And we understand that it's something that will be easy to be used by the on-site staff. We'll be able to have training. We'll be able to have benchmarking. And also, we're going to have technology that really makes us extremely well-informed going in as we start thinking about where we want to operate, what we want to operate, and to whom we want to operate for. So uh, I think it's been a very worthwhile time to just get a little smarter on the industry and the tools that are available and be able now to kind of tailor all those resources to be able to provide a platform that is very well positioned for success. So I'm also curious, so you came from a public company, you know, when, when you're the CEO of a public company, I think you and I have even talked about this, you know, you have to obviously be very careful with what you say. So I'm curious, so now that you're with a, a company that's not public, do you feel like you can maybe retreat a little bit from the spotlight and maybe work on things a little bit more behind the scenes? And what is that like, you know, compared to where you came from? Yeah, well, you know, I, I felt that I was fortunate to work with great people at Capital Studio Living. And I always say that there was a, I joined Capital in 1996. We went public in 1997. And I was fortunate to join a team of leaders 
that created a great culture. And I was smart enough not to, not to mess it up. So we kind of built on that culture. And we're recreating the same here. Uh, yeah, there are the ability not to have earnings calls, not preparing 10 Qs and 10 Ks, but there are disciplines you learn of running a public company that are very helpful and will continue to really benchmark a performance and have business plans that do measure quarter to quarter results, but with a longer term view. So it's really behind the scenes, we are extremely busy. As I said, we really are building out state-of-the-art systems, technologies. We have a very robust data analytics that we're using both to analyze uh, opportunities that we're looking at and then to be able to benchmark our results against industry KPIs. We've already developed sales and marketing programs operational and clinical strategies, systems, reporting. You know, people ask, it's interesting to start a platform with no properties. And when you look at the talent that we brought back together, a team that has such great experience and track record and a common mission, and you look at the care and quality component, recognizing how important that is to serve our residents and truly be resident-centric. I think tells a lot about what we think about this industry and how we want to position ourselves as a re- restart in this industry. The other thing that's interesting is that we are refreshed. This has been a very tough year. I have tremendous admiration for my friends and the many heroes in this industry, truly behind the scenes, that did a phenomenal job of caring for residents and families in the most trying times this industry has ever experienced. But there's a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of financial pressure. We're coming in fresh. We have a clean balance sheet. We have no debt. We have no leases. We have no guarantees. And we're fortunate that we also are entering the industry with very well-capitalized financial partners that can help fund the growth uh, that we're pursuing. So we feel that it was not planned, but we're entering the industry at a very interesting time. And our, you know, we have a very active pipeline and seeing many opportunities that may have not been there prior to um, the COVID pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about your pipeline, but before I do that, I want to maybe go over sort of, you know, the, the market that you plan to serve. So I know that there's been discussion about how Trustwell is going to serve the middle market, but I, I think that the definition of that phrase is kind of abstract. You know, it can change, you know, depending on who you talk to. So how does Trustwell define the middle market, especially in terms of rates? Great question. The middle market is a very broad term. Okay. I did some research before this podcast. Went back, refreshed my recollection. So obviously a big initiative of Nick Mapp and others has been serving the middle market. And we all understand as we see this growth of this age cohort that we serve over into the future, which is very exciting. We also understand that affordability becomes much more of an issue. So the definition, the 75 to 84 age cohort is defined as having income spanning from twenty-five dollars to $75,000 a year. That's a very big, broad definition. 
The 85 and elder cohort is actually even wider. It goes 25 to $90,000. So what we're looking at is serving the upper half of that income distribution. And we're looking at taking over or acquiring properties that probably have rents that average, say, $2,800 for independent living, about $3,800 for assisted living, and more than $5,000 a month for memory care. So we're looking at buildings that can generate positive cash flow. We're looking at properties that can generate adequate margins. And then we believe we have the ability by increasing occupancy, proactively managing our expenses to see a growth in our bottom line and expansion of that margin over time. I remember, I mean, I've, I've been to Nick events in which, they, you know, there's also been discussion about whether or not margins needed to be tweaked to truly hit the middle market. And for the record, you know, I often hear of, of typical margins being around 30%, 35% in senior housing. So I guess, do you agree with the notion that these margins might need to change a little bit to really hit the middle market? And, and also just what is your general philosophy on margins with regard to the middle market? You know, is there a particular number that you're trying to hit with Trustwell? Great question. I think that margins are really key performance indicator. Too much time is spent talking about occupancies. When I would, uh, for 22 years leading capital student living, I would have an executive summary every month showing the key financial performance of every community. And the first metric I looked at was margin, not occupancy. The second metric was rate, and the third metric was occupancy. There's a strong correlation that's been documented for decades in this industry that margins are driven more by average monthly rate than by occupancy. We have looked at a lot of buildings since we launched Trustful, and I spent over the last year or two looking at a lot of opportunities. If you look at the first quarter NIC map data, we've seen an unprecedented drop in occupancy for this industry, where first quarter occupancies averaged about 78%, down 8.7 percentage points from a year ago. That is very, very large. And it, assisted living is like 75 and a half. So uh, we're seeing a lot of buildings where there is no margin. We're seeing a lot of buildings that opened within the last three years that lease-ups were stalled because of COVID, and they're still not generating positive cash flow. We're seeing many buildings that are 20-plus years of age that are in tired condition, need CapEx, need some strong leadership at the community level, and they, too, are not generating a positive margin. So I think that the industry average is probably lower than it's been historically. I'm seeing a lot of buildings uh, that actually performed well during COVID. Many of these were performing extremely well before COVID. They were able to minimize the impact in their communities. And they've come out of the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic with attractive margins occupancies and a very steep recovery since residents have been vaccinated and the communities have been opened up to visitation and to activities. 
So I look at this market really as being trifurcated. You know, those buildings that were recently built that never stabilized, buildings that were challenged and even are further challenged because of COVID and buildings that were stable and remain stable and performing better. We're focusing on a combination of those three. And what's really interesting is what is what we saw in past downturns, because I'm doing, doing this long enough where I have the experience of having dealt with the oversupply of the late 1990s, the Great Recession, the housing downturn in 2008 to 2010. What's unique about this situation is that this downturn is a combination of demand and supply. What we've seen is, in fact, I just saw a report today from Beth Mace, a good friend of mine, reporting that uh, Nick Map is showing that over the last year, absorption demand fell by 42,000 units. That's incredible. And while that was occurring, supply increased by 18,000 units. So that's a delta of 60,000 units that we have to deal with. So as I think about the margins, and I think what we're looking for, we're looking very selectively, very strategically of where and what we want to operate. We are very cognizant of the margins going into the buildings and looking at ways that we can improve those margins by creating operating efficiencies, by increasing the occupancy and rate. But we're also very aware that there are many buildings that may never get there, that their rates are so low that even if they fill, they still won't generate a margin that will be able to support the cost of capital. And I think what we'll see is many of those will be converted to alternative uses. So, you know, the good news is that supply is at levels we haven't seen in many years. We are seeing growing demand of the age cohort that we serve. And I do think that properties that are well situated in markets that are not overly saturated and where rates have remained the integrity, I think one of the key takeaways of what would make capital successful rebounding from the overbuilding of the late 1990s and the housing downturn of 2008 to 2010 was our discipline to maintain the integrity of that rate structure and saw a nice recovery coming out of that. I think this time the industry is different. You, I think you you alluded a little bit to your strategy of looking for you know a little bit older buildings and adapting those as part of your plans to hit the middle market. You know, early in the pandemic, I had wondered whether or not we'd see a a wave of distressed properties on sale for a discount to replacement cost. You know, I think a lot of people in the industry had wondered if that was going to be the case. I'm not sure if that actually really ever materialized. So I'm curious, as you look out into the market or as you've been looking out into the market, what are you seeing? And are, are there still some, are there some good deals out there? There are still very good deals. Good deals combine properties that are stable, that there's still growth opportunity, there's opportunity to, uh, whether it be to expand the buildings or create more levels of care or change the utilization of some of the units and drive returns. There are buildings that, as I said, have been challenged, whether they're recently opened 
and haven't been able to film or buildings that need capex. So we're taking a very holistic approach to these buildings. When we look at these opportunities, we're looking at the physical plant, we're looking at capital needs, we're looking at the ability to reconfigure the buildings by utilization, whether it be levels of care, the mix of units, the size of units. So we're looking at combining units, shrinking capacity in some cases, and blending the mix between independent living, assisted living, and or member care. We're looking in some cases of even perhaps just completely repositioning a building. And if it's in a good market and has opportunity of going in and investing the capital into the community and updating and refreshing. And then we're looking at buildings, as I said, that did very well. I think part of the challenge is there's a lot of money on the sidelines right now looking for opportunity. There's been a big delta between the ask and the bid. And I think that's starting to narrow. I think part of what we have seen is that, as you saw, the demand, I mean, we've never seen negative absorption at the extent that we have in the last four quarters. So it's a little difficult to underwrite the performance going forward coming out of this pandemic. The other advantage that we believe we have at Trustwell is I mentioned that we are well capitalized with partners and we're looking at buying properties and have the ability to buy properties for all cash. So we don't have to be limited by financing, which is very challenging today. So we have a very disciplined and strategic approach to what we want to do. We can be selective in how we attain that. We're looking at opportunities where we can come as a third party manager with an owner to improve a current situation. We're looking at opportunities we can come in with a capital partner. We're looking at opportunities we can come in with a partner to provide working capital to finance a shortfall that has to be met as operations stabilize and improve. And we feel that we have the arsenal of operational skill, resources, and talent, and the financial resources to match up to that to allow us to be very, very strategic in how we look at how that capital is invested and how we deploy our human resources to be able to really improve the performance of properties that we will be taking over. You, you had also mentioned a little bit ago how this pandemic, this downturn is is different than previous downturns. But I guess you, you've been through a lot of rough patches in this industry. You've seen a lot. So I know that you've you've shared a little bit of your wisdom on on kind of how this stacks up to maybe some of the past downturns. But is there anything else that you've learned in the past that applies here or just anything else that, you know, you can compare what's happening now to what has happened in the past and what, what it all means? Look, this is unprecedented, okay? However, what we learned from the past, and I think what we'll see today, and I'm starting to see as we look at opportunities, as in the past, those operators, those communities that had a disciplined approach to how they thought about their average monthly rent will typically recover first. And that's what we saw previously. I went back and looked at some information going back 25 years and going through the overbuilding of the late 1990s when Capital Senior went public in 1997, 
our occupancies averaged 47%, I'm sorry, 97% with a margin of 45%, predominantly independent living. When the overbuilding occurred in the late 1990s, what was interesting is buildings that were stable remained stable. It was the lease up of the newly built buildings that were being challenged because of the supply pressures. And it took about four years for the industry to recover from that overbuilding to fill those units. However, the stable buildings remained relatively stable. Going back to 2008 to 2010, we lost occupancy, but we were able to actually save expenses to a manner that we maintain margin and actually increase cash flow because we maintain the integrity of that rate structure. And there, the recovery was interesting. If I look today at the NICMAP data, quarter by quarter from 2006 to the first quarter of 2021, between 2011 and 2016, in 19 out of the 24 quarters, absorption exceeded supply. As a result, the industry saw a nice recovery of occupancy from 2011 into 2016. Again, we're coming out of this eight, not 870 basis point downturn in 12 months. I think this recovery will take longer to achieve. And I do think coming out of this, we may see more failures, more buildings that are just unable to recover because of their rate structure and their occupancy to a level where they actually can generate the returns to operate efficiently and successfully. On another topic, you know, the three publicly traded senior housing companies, one of which you used to lead, have substantially trimmed their senior housing portfolios. And I think COVID definitely weighs on some of that. But having led a a public company, I wanted to get your take. Do you think there's too much pressure to keep growing at a rate with public operators that might not be sustainable, given the nature of the senior living operating business? Great question. Everyone talks about scale in senior living and what that sweet spot is to operate efficiently where you are. Um, Capital, even with our growth, was still the smallest of the public companies. We had a very disciplined approach and we focused on acquisitions of properties. We, From 2011 to 2016, we acquired about 65 buildings. And we did it typically at a cadence of maybe five to seven a year. And we did onesie-twosies. So we were able to assimilate those buildings into operations and actually did a nice job when I left left capital in 2018, they were still generating very attractive returns, um, those acquisitions. I think that um, thinking about the shrinkage that has occurred, I think a lot of it has to do in the the case of whether it be properties that had long-term leases, that over time markets change, cash flows change, Uh, I do think that the industry's fundamentals changed a lot coming out of the recession in 2010 because of very low interest rates. You know, in 2007, we were achieving four to five percent increases in average monthly rent per year. And we were generating eight to 10 percent same store NOI growth 
coming out of the recession, we've seen a much more muted rate growth, averaging one and a half to two percent. And in many cases, they've been flat through the pandemic. So I do think there's been pressure about that regular increase in rent that occurs over a 10, 15, 20 year period when rates are more muted and the income doesn't grow as rapidly. So I think that a lot of that had to do with whether it be public or private, just the pressure placed on the leased portfolios. I do think that in some of the cases, companies may have grown very large through transactions to acquisitions and realize that um, this still is a very local business and every market is different. And the most important resource in this industry is people and having talent and having the ability to attract and retain talent. One of the benefits we did have of having a disciplined growth strategy was we had career paths that we could develop for talent at the community level. And we were able to promote people either internally at the community or a good sales director or executive director can become a regional manager, can become a corporate officer. So there's a nice career path on that. So again, I think the reasons for shrinkage vary by company. And I think it could be by uh, perhaps uh, care levels, whether it be changes in philosophy of care levels, operational size, size does matter. As I said, I think that the approach to this business is recognizing that it is very much dependent upon the ability to attract talent. I've been really uh, uplifted by the outreach that we continue to hear from former colleagues at Capital Studio Living at all levels of the organization, many of whom have are no longer at Capital, from activities directors to sales directors, executive directors, regional corporate staff, who want, they, they all have a very similar message how much they enjoyed working for, with our team, and it would be an honor to rejoin us. So we feel very fortunate that we have great bench strength, that as we build out our portfolio, we've already identify, identified the talent that we can bring in at various levels of trust wealth to operate successfully the properties that we will operate in the future. You mentioned earlier also how some operators perhaps focus too much on occupancy and not enough on margin and rate. So along those lines, is there anything else uh, or is there anything at all that you think a lot of other operators in this industry do wrong or, or in a way that you wouldn't do? You know, Is there a common pitfall or something that you see operators falling into time and time again? Great question. I, I put the question to operators and developers. Sometimes operators are doing all the right things, but the building just may be in the wrong location or have the wrong configuration. One thing I think is really important for developers is to develop with an operator that has experience and understands that you need to build properties in a way that they can operate efficiently and successfully. And that will be a based on the mix of units, making sure they're not too big, not too small, staffing, understanding the needs for staffing those properties, understanding the local market dynamics, 
This is not a field of dreams. It's not a, a, an industry where if you build it, they will come. You ask questions about the middle market. Will people be able to afford it? Are there enough seniors or adult children that are income qualified to be able to be able to afford the rents that you have to operate? And be very, very cognizant of the fact, you know, I, I, my observation for a number of years based on that middle market was that it would be difficult for supply to come into those markets because they can't achieve a rate level to justify the higher cost of development. Nevertheless, buildings were built and pro formas were structured with those higher rents, but they never were achieved. And as a result, you're seeing buildings that are underperforming because they can't achieve the rent structure that they projected going in that supported a construction loan or an investor to build that building. So, you know, I, I think that what is very important for, and I put both the operator and the developer owner in the same basket, is to really look at history, look at past performance, look at the market, understand the market, make sure that you have robust data that gives you very good, truthful insight of what's going and make sure that you are measuring up against realistic expectations. If you do that, you can be very successful. But if not, then a lot of investors will be disappointed, lenders will be challenged, and operators will be burdened by some ill-conceived communities. I also want to talk about the future. Uh, we have a little bit of time left, so I want to talk about what you think lies ahead. So we, we, you talked a little bit about how you think a recovery will be you know, more extended. I think earlier this year, there were a lot of hopes for a really strong comeback in the second half of this year, perhaps now, maybe a little bit of a longer time frame for all of that. So I guess um, you know, as you look ahead to the rest of this year, what do you think the industry should expect? And if you had to guess on timing, you know, when do you expect we might really start to get back to this, you know, so-called normal working environment? Well, nobody has a crystal ball. As I said, it's very unprecedented. There were a lot of encouraging comments from the public companies that reported some of the podcasts that Senior Housing News has produced that I think everyone saw a nice boost in regeneration and move-ins in March. Some moderated in April, some continued. What we don't know is what transpired in the last 12 months on seniors that did move into communities in a very need-driven era because of the fact that it was the pandemic. A lot of the discretionary movements didn't occur because people didn't want to move into communities that they had to be quarantined or there was no visitation or activities. So we'll see what happens with the attrition levels over the next six to 12 months based on the health and acuity of the residents that moved in over the last 12 months. As I said, if you look at the data just showing this negative absorption, you know, 42,000 units and 18,000 units of new supply, that's a lot of units with an inherent occupancy that's close to 10 percentage points below average. 
And so I think there's a lot that has to be recovered. I think it's a very wide delta. Another interesting statistic that came out from Nick recently, going into the pandemic, 33% of properties that reported had occupancies of 95% or higher. In the first quarter, that slipped to 9.6%. Of properties that reported in the first quarter of 2020 had occupancies below 80%. 46% of reporting companies had occupancies below 80% in the first quarter of 2021. So I think that it will take longer. I think that I'm very bullish about the future of this industry, but I do think that there will be a number of buildings that will have challenges for a period of time that may ultimately be converted to other uses. The other statistic that is encouraging is supply is down to like one and a half percent of existing inventory. So we probably will see less supply pressures over the next few years. We know the demographic is growing. I really can't guess what that recovery will be, but I just believe that the fundamentals are such that it will take longer this time than what we saw in 2000 and in 2010. All right. One more question for you, Larry. In light of what you just told me, so what are you going to be focused on this year? And also, when do you think, you know, when do you think we might see the first Trustwell community open its doors? Hopefully soon. Okay. As I said, we've been very busy. It's been great, you know, to work with our team that have worked so well for so long. And I feel very blessed to have the best, I believe is the best talent in the industry. So we are looking at situations right now of coming in, taking over operations of buildings, infusing some capital. As I mentioned, we have a very active pipeline with very strong capital partners for acquisitions that are you know, looking very promising. Obviously, um, licensure will take some time. There's some, you know, still some lag time with uh, issues on licensure, but we believe that in the near term, uh, you'll be hearing more about uh, our uh, taking over operations and, and starting to really, and we're excited about getting back to work and really caring for residents and, and staff and you know, really becoming active again, if you will, with a live portfolio. Well, I know we will be following along in the future, so I look forward to seeing what all that looks like as well. Anyway, Larry, thank you so much for coming on Transform today. I think this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Tim, always great talking to you. Thank you so much and have a great afternoon. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming build event here in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. Again, I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.